Hello, all, and welcome back to the Overcoming Podcast. My name is Allie Rothrock, and this is a companion podcast to my new book, After Trauma, which is out now wherever you get your books. Today, we are going to be talking about Chapter 3, Your Struggle is a Tunnel, Not a Cave, and we are starting on page 67 of the book if you are following along. So this chapter was a really interesting one for me to write. I spent a lot of time on this chapter, especially making sure that this tunnel, not a cave sort of through line thread was there. And I want to start where I always do in these chapters uh, with the quote that I chose. If you listen to previous episodes, you will remember hearing me talk about how many quotes I had that I wanted to include, um, how important it was for me to feel like I had the exact right quote to sum up sort of exactly what I wanted to say and what I wanted the chapter to be saying. And this band, Need to Breathe, is my favorite band of all time. I've seen them in concert many, many, many times with my best friend Hannah, who also makes an appearance in this book. And this quote, um, is from a song called Washed by the Water, which is one of my favorites from them. It's hard to choose a favorite, but um, this is a top top five for me for sure, this song. Um, and the quote says, even when the rain falls, even when the flood starts rising, even when the storm comes, I am washed by the water. And I love this quote for so many reasons. Uh, Hannah, who I mentioned, actually had this quote commissioned for me um, by an artist. I have it in this beautiful sort of handwritten uh, watercolor Uh, framed art piece on my wall. And I love this quote because what it especially speaks to, I feel like for this time in my life is that the rain was falling, you know, the flood water was rising. Uh, It was storming. It was storming for me uh, mentally. It was storming in my world. Um, It was a very tumultuous, chaotic time. But I can see now that that storm was necessary for the cleansing that needed to happen, you know, being washed by the water. This that just makes me feel it it makes me feel like it was a cleansing time. And so even though it was so hard and my trauma was just really accumulating and really in this chapter, I begin to experience and explore uh, triggers It was a cleansing time as well, even though it didn't feel like that at the time. It definitely felt like I was still in this, uh, in this cave that I was not going to get out of, but I can see now and, and want readers to be able to see that, you know, that is a tunnel as in there's always a way out. There's always light at the end of it. And it's never a place that you have to be in permanently. And so this chapter begins with me um, joining an additional firehouse, uh, one that was not that far from my very first one. And when I think back to the version of myself that was joining that firehouse, I was so optimistic, had no idea that I had a brain full of trauma, had no idea that I was not out of my tunnel yet had no idea that this place that I thought was going to be like a happy ending for me was actually a place where I was going to learn that I had a lot more work to do before I could consider the overcoming to be real. Um, I talk about how, you know, in the beginning, like my 33-year-old self can look back now and see what was coming was again clear from the very beginning in this firehouse too, just based on the question that I was asked in my interview, which was, we don't have any other females here. How will you handle that? 
And in the book, I say I should have asked them how they were going to handle it, but I didn't. I was so used to being made responsible for other people's reaction to me that I just sort of made a joke and was like, well, it's not my first time and I know how to handle it and blah, 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 blah. Um, But that comment to me now is clear of like, oh, this was never going to be a really harmonious place um, for me. Um, And I talk about how I just slowly began to realize that the environment in this firehouse was not going to be one that was um, super safe for me. It was going to be yet another experience where my gender was made to be the biggest deal in the world. And, um, but at the same time, I was having positive experiences. I was um, getting to meet people who were my age in the fire service before everyone was usually much older than me. And so, you know, being in a college town, I was able to meet um, people who were my age who had been a firefighter since they were 16, like I was, and had come to that town to you know, go to college and therefore, even though I wasn't in college like them, I was like, hey, we're same age and in like a similar sort of life phase. Um, And on page 70 is the first time that I mentioned meeting a a firefighter named Forrest who I would go on to marry. Um, And it was fun to to have him in there. I'm sure it's very strange for him to see his uh, name in a book like that. Um, And on page 72, I wanted to write, I wanted to have a piece in here about Like on page 72 towards the bottom, I say habit, muscle memory, instinct, purpose. And I'm talking about my instantaneous reaction to getting a call, being dispatched to a call, having my pager alert, knowing that there was something that happened. And even before we knew what it was, we were already like running to be able to respond to it. And I, I loved writing that piece. It was really fun to put words to that, just sort of habit, muscle memory, instinct, purpose, whatever it is, any first responder knows that like start of a marathon race that goes like your adrenaline spikes your heart starts to race you're just like it also it all of a sudden becomes a really fun day because you know that you're going to get to do something cool um and so in this new firehouse and as we sort of flip through the pages on page 74 now I was both finding moments of peace and a reminder of, oh, I I love this job and I'm good at it and I'm getting to meet people who are my age and I have this great thing in common with. Um, But what started to happen was I started to experience triggers that I, at the time, didn't have the knowledge or space in my brain or energy to investigate them or to try to stop having them. Um, The first one that I wrote about was um, when one of the firefighters just, you know, joking, um, came up and like grabbed me from behind. Um, You know, it wasn't cool, but he didn't have like a malicious intent there. But my body panicked because my my body was remembering a memory that my mind wasn't aware of. And I say that at at the bottom of page 74. And then next I talk about an experience when, you know, Hurricane Sandy was beating up on the East Coast. We were all told to staff our stations overnight because we anticipated a lot of calls potentially and storm damage. And it was just easier to already be there. So we didn't have to, you know, be in danger trying to get to the firehouse in the middle of a storm. And that was my first opportunity of trying to sleep in a firehouse since the sexual assault that I had experienced lots of years before. 
And I didn't understand that the reason that I couldn't sleep and every time I would start to fall asleep or like my eyes would close, I didn't understand why my heart would start to race and I would be just really uncomfortable and scared. That was a trigger. My body was remembering something that I couldn't yet connect the dots to. And I have such just grace and gentleness in my heart for that version of myself who was really at the the beginning of this unique struggle. I had been just sort of surviving and enduring things up to that point, but now was the time that I was really going to have to square with the impact that those experiences as those experiences had had on me. And I wasn't yet able to do that. I was just continuing to experience um, these triggers. And being around people who were drunk or drinking was a huge trigger for me. I lived in a college town at that time, lots of bars. It was once the number one party school in the country. So drinking and drinking to excess is definitely very much a part of that culture there. And so being in that environment uh, was really, really hard for my brain. And I felt really scared a lot of the time. But again, I couldn't, I couldn't, I wasn't able to connect those dots yet. And I just talk about how I felt like my gender was really erased in this firehouse, very intentionally. I was asked to be around when there were Girl Scout troops or things like that to be visible. But other than that, those firefighters were just trying to keep the system that had been working for only them. They were trying to keep that together. um, And I was just viewed as an interruption to that. And so they were just trying to make it as uncomfortable as possible for me to be there. But, you know, this chapter is is about hardship and it's about me being in that tunnel still and and not realizing that I was going to have to do some more work to get out of it. But on page 82, I talk about how, you know, I talk about falling in love with my husband and I was so committed to the idea that no matter what, no matter who, no matter when, I would never be romantically involved with a firefighter ever. I had never been up until that point. I mean, I married the only firefighter that I ever was romantically involved in. Um, But I had just been told for so long, oh, you must only, like, you're not serious about this job. You're only here to find a boyfriend or whatever. I'd been told that for so long and I was so adamant about never fitting into a stereotype that no matter, even when I knew that I was in love with him, I was still like committed to that. Like, no, it's it's too, it, I couldn't possibly fit into that stereotype. And so it took me a while. Uh, I was stubborn about how I felt about him and it was, you know, he made it very clear how I felt about me, but it took me a while to get over that and um, be okay with how that part of my life unfolded. And even though, you know, I married a fellow firefighter, uh, that's okay. Like I had to let that be okay. Um, and I, I remember talking really deliberately and, and talk, settling, like talking about, uh, what am I trying to say here? On page 84, the middle paragraph, I talk about how Forrest had a completely different experience to what I had around these same people and how that's really common for people in a work environment or in a friend group or whatever, where you know, I was definitely the minority in this in this group as the only woman, and um, some of the men who were the most awful to me were the nicest to Forrest and were the nicest to every other male firefighter there, and that makes it 
hard for people to believe you sometimes because they would think, and not trying to be like malicious or disbelieving, but would think, well, I've had really great experiences with that person and they've been really helpful to me and they, you know, want me to succeed. So I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just like a problem between you and him. Like maybe he just doesn't like you and, and people fail to see the systemic nature in that and the purposeful oppression in that and the purposeful singling out of someone based on, you know, their gender or their race or their sexual orientation or their sexual identity or anything like that. And I wanted to really touch on that is that, you know, I say here on page 84, neither of us is wrong when we reflect back on that time in different ways. You know, before things back, like those are great people. And to me, those were not great people. And neither of us is wrong. Both of our experiences can be correct and we can hold space for both of them. And then on page 85, I talk about this car accident that I responded to in that time, uh, which we determined pretty quickly was not actually an accident, was an intentional way that the driver was trying to end his own life. He broke, I mean, uh, broke, he obliterated um, his pelvis, which is incredibly hard to do. It's a very strong bone in your body. And that just affects everything. I knew when we knew how badly he was injured, my next thought was how permanent that was going to be in his life for a long time. It's not like, you know, you break your wrist, your wrist heals, you move on like it didn't happen, hopefully, but a broken pelvis, he was going to have to learn to walk and talk and sit or, you know, walk and sit and stand and all of that again. And I remember watching a trauma chaplain when we finally got him to the hospital, a trauma chaplain go in and and just speak with him. Um, And it was at this point in the book where I included the very first interview that I had done with uh, someone who wasn't me to tell an additional story about trauma or the overcoming of it. And this was one of the first interviews that I did. And it was um, from a a trauma chaplain named James, who I met at uh, my CrossFit gym when I lived in Philadelphia. And James shared a story, just many stories with me. I only included a small bit of it in here. But he had such beautiful, beautiful things to say about trauma chaplaincy, about his own trauma, about what embracing his traumatic experiences allows him to do, how it allows him to be with people in, you know, on the actual literal worst day of their lives. And I just love so much about what he had to say about his faith and how he stayed connected to it, even when he was, you know, cursing God for allowing horrible things to happen. James was sort of simultaneously praying to God to give him more strength. And just that dichotomy was so beautiful to me. Um, And I just love what he had to say about sort of that renewal, that that sense of renewed strength that he he got. Um, And he's just a really, really special person. Um, And then I talk about an experience that I had uh, getting a dead body out of a car and just being in what I describe as like a quiet grave uh, when a car crashes, if it crashes hard enough, all the airbags deploy and um, the airbags to the side of you are called side curtain airbags and it they literally deploy and then when they deflate, they fall down like a curtain. So you can't see through the window, there's like a piece of fabric that, you know, is that's the deflated airbag. And so when we got to this um, car and I got in it to help the paramedics um, remove the body, all the airbags had deployed and, and deflated, so it was really quiet in there. And it was just me and this young man who had been killed. Um, and I just, I'll never forget that 
quietness and you know I describe it as a quiet grave because that's that's what it was and I included that story after James's story just to talk about um you know the care that James gave to people and the care that I've learned to give to people even when they are dead and they're not aware of what I'm doing it still it helps me and it helps just sort of everyone to still you know treat those people as if they're your loved one. Um, it helps us bring some sort of peace to that experience. And then I talk about, you know, towards the end of the chapter, finding your way through the tunnel and how important it is to learn how resilient you are and how that really can only come by spending time in the tunnel, trying to find different ways out, different methods to help yourself process. Um, and I talk about, you know, who can shine a flashlight ahead of you to help you see who, who can keep you company while you were in that tunnel. And I remember when I was writing that piece of this book, I wrote it, um, in April of 2021. So a full year before the book was published, I was like heading my way through my final edits and my husband and I were on a vacation in the Bahamas. And I remember he was, I was sitting down like on a bench and I was sort of talking through this piece out loud. And I was just like sort of getting stuck in the metaphor and he, he was the one who just sort of hit me with these sort of quick hits of like, um, well, sometimes you have to go down a route and find a dead end. You turn around, maybe you have to backtrack. You feel like that was wasted time, but it's not. You needed to explore that. And I was like writing down everything he says. He was like, I want credit for that part of this book. So page 89, Forrest, uh, you get credit for helping me sort of see that metaphor through. My brain was pretty tapped and tired at that point in these edits. Um, but I love that piece. I love that. You know, there's no, there's no false starts in this. We try to overcome. We try to change our relationship with our triggers. We try to move forward and it is not linear and it's not as fast as we want it to be, but we are still getting there and every step forward counts. And at the end uh, for the reflection and action piece, um, you know, I, I talk about this, you know, this concept of, um, reminding yourself why, why you are motivated to keep going. Overcoming is exhausting. It's solitary. It's isolating. It's just you trying to do that work, even if you have company. And so I really talk about reminding yourself and keeping at the forefront of your mind why you are doing it. And then how we can recognize our own patterns um, to identify what cycles we're following so we can perhaps break them. And then finally, I talk about how we can practice acceptance instead of judgment for ourselves, for, you know, how long we think it's taking us to overcome something. How can we practice acceptance there that can allow us to keep moving forward? Thank you for being with me as I talk about chapter three of my new book, After Trauma. Next week, we will be talking about chapter four. This one's a doozy. Your life is your responsibility. See you next week. Bye.